evening. Grab a Bible. We're going to John chapter 3, verse 16. I want to publicly thank germs for changing uh, the octave of my voice very severely. Uh, we're glad that you are with us tonight. John chapter 3, verse 16. I'm going to sit down. That's how, that's how cruddy I'm feeling. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 16. If you need a Bible, go ahead and let one of our ushers know. We're going to start there, and then uh, we'll be all over the scriptures tonight. John chapter 3. Let's read it together when I get there. Be nice. John chapter 3, verse 16. Let's read it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So, for God so loved the world, he gave his Son, whoever believes, and then tonight we're going to look at the phrase, shall not perish. So, what we want to do is we want to set the context for this phrase. We're going to talk about judgment. We're going to talk about hell. It's going to be awesome. So excited. Uh, we are, uh, uh, we're a community that, that uh, just wants to talk about all the stuff in the scriptures and not just always the popular stuff. And Jesus really doesn't let us off the hook on this one. He's the guy who talks most about this subject. So if you're going to receive his teaching on love, you have to receive his teaching uh, on what it is to perish. Now, the word perish means to live in a constant state of destruction, to be constantly annihilated, in other words. It's a really positive phrase. Go ahead, Mondo, fire up the PowerPoint. Perish doesn't mean that you are annihilated. Perish means it refers to the situation of a person or object that has lost the essence of its nature or function. Now this becomes really, really important. And the word, there's this whole word group that we translate perish or be destroyed or destruction. And so I just put examples up there. It can refer to barren land, land that is not used for its intended purpose. Uh, it can refer to uh, ointment that is poured out wastefully. It can refer to wineskins uh, with holes in them that can no longer function. Uh, it can refer to a lost coin. So the idea is there is something that exists, but it, it's lost the purpose for which it was created. That is what it means to perish or to be destroyed in biblical language. Next slide. In none of these cases, nope. Mondo, I'm looking, at, I'm looking at this screen. Yeah, there it is. Put that one up there. There we go. In none of these cases do the objects cease to exist, but they cease to be useful or to exist in their original intended state. So the idea is there was a function for which these were created. They have ceased operating in that function. So to perish... For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes shall not perish. So salvation from is salvation from this idea of perishing. Losing the function, the essence for which you were created. Now to explore the idea of perish, because it's so wonderful, let's go to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to jump to Genesis. We're going to spend some time exploring the idea of what it is to perish. And I know you're very excited. I can sense the joy rising. Right. Genesis chapter 2, verse, let's start in verse 8. 
So we read these passages a lot. This is the second account of creation. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. But in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jump over, if you would, to chapter, six, uh, to chapter 2, verse 16. So same chapter, eight verses later. God commands the man, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly what? Die. Now, we know how the story goes from this point. They don't die immediately, but they do die, right? Death becomes introduced into the story when they sin. But I want you to notice why when you have uh, the creation story, and everything is characterized by this word called shalom, there's this integrational wholeness that exists between God and humans, humans and themselves, humans and each other, humans and creation. And really, I mean, they're, they're, they are... They're, meant, this Adam and this Eve are meant for perfect intimacy and worship and service to their creator. Why would God stick a tree? Just one tree out of all the trees and then say, don't eat of the fruit of that one. Now, my personal opinion, and you may disagree, my personal opinion is that very early in the story, God reveals his desire to have cooperative participants and not robots helping him out govern the earth. Ultimately, the desire he has for his uh, creation is that, at least on the human side, that, that we would love him. And so God introduces uh, an amount of freedom into the story so that Adam and Eve could fundamentally choose to cooperate or choose not to. So here's this tree that represents a choice. Now, we know how the story goes, right? Adam and Eve disobey. They eat from the tree. Jump to chapter 3, verse 23. Notice the punishment that they receive. God curses the serpent. He curses the woman. He curses the ground, indirectly cursing the man. And then he, he does this. He banishes them. Verse 23. So the Lord God banished the man and the woman, of course, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man and the woman out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, all sorts of questions this raises, but one very simple point is pretty obvious. What's the punishment they receive? Brothers and sisters, good evening. Now listen, I feel cruddy. We're talking about hell. That's two strikes against me. Okay, so you have to carry a little more than usual tonight, all right, in the terms of the like energy and responsiveness category. What do they do? God banishes them. He excludes them. The image for which they were created, the function they were to have, is now diminished. It's not... It's not gone. I mean, God will, of course, reaffirm they're still made in his image, but something is tarnished. Something's been diminished. Something's been introduced now into creation, sin and death. It wasn't there previously. There was no perishing prior to this moment. It was never to be a part of God's good original creation. 
So God, in essence, says to them, I gave you the choice to live under my rule. You would rather live under your own rule. So what does he give them? Their own rule. If you'd like to, if you'd like to call your own shots, call your own shots. In essence, that's the punishment. It's banishment, and it's a banishment that results in the diminishing of the image of God in them, but it's a, demand, it's, it's a punishment ultimately that gives them what they want, which is independence, autonomy, to call their own shots, to live in their own kingdoms where their will is done, as opposed to living in God's kingdom where his will is done. Are you with me so far in this? So in John chapter 3, verse 16... We meet the idea of perish. The word, though, in English doesn't really translate the concept in Greek. The concept in Greek is to live in a perpetual state of destruction. Well, that just sounds so awful. What can that possibly mean? Well, at minimum, it means that something has lost the function for which it was created. The, the, it was created with, with some sort of essence that led to some sort of function, and that essence is diminished so it no longer fulfills the function for which it was created. Now, I want to suggest that the idea of perish also includes the idea of banishment. There is this God, God's desire, and then sin and death enter the world, and they're excluded from God's desire. Now, of course, God redeems and he restores and he covers them, but fundamentally, they've been banished. Now, this idea of banishment. Mondo, fire up the slide that has all the verses on banishment. It's awesome. Jesus uses this image of banishment all over the place. Go ahead and put that one up. So, Jesus, away from me, I never knew you. People thrown outside into the darkness. Throw him outside into the darkness. Matthew 25, I don't know you. Throw the servant outside into the darkness. Depart from me into eternal fire. Depart from me, I don't know you. Second Thessalonians, Paul says it most dramatically. They will be shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. So minimally, perish means exclusion from the presence of God, right? And in that exclusion, image of God is tarnished. Image of God is diminished in humans. We still have it, but we're not all that we were meant and created to be. Now, go to 1 Corinthians. The news just gets better. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul Paul says something here that I find absolutely interesting. If you can find this stuff interesting. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll start, uh, we'll just read verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. How, how are we doing? All right? I feel like Barry White teaching on hell. Seriously. Just ridiculous. And I don't like sitting. I'm having trouble staying seated. Don't know why you care. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are present tense. So evidently, see, I read parish and I think, okay, well, that's what happens once you die. And we'll see this next week when we look at eternal life. You think that's something that happens once you die. But that's not the scriptural teaching. The scriptural teaching is that 
you are presently being saved or you are presently perishing. So the movement of the scriptures isn't that the idea of to perish is some random judgment made by an arbitrary God, but it's actually a journey. Perish is the end of a journey of perishing, and perishing is present tense. So it's not just Hey guys, get your ticket to heaven because you'll fry unless you do, you know, after you die unless you do. There's this sense biblically that perishing begins now. And we'll see next week. And that eternal life begins now. And guess what? Which do you think the Bible spends more time on? Perishing later or perishing now? perishing now we can guess about some of the details but i'm telling you what the american church has read way more into the bible than the bible itself suggests on this topic the scriptures spend a lot more time on the idea of perishing what does that mean and look like go to romans chapter one flip the book prior what does it mean So we've talked about perish. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish. What's that mean? Well, minimally, it's the idea of banishment, and that banishment includes the idea of a diminishment of the purpose for which you were created. Okay. Well, then the surprise is that starts now. That's just not, hey, we're all living our lives, and then bam, we die, and then here's this arbitrary God saying, hey, you guys didn't keep my rules, you didn't memorize my Bible verses, you're toast. The idea is that perishing is something that's happening all around us all the time. So we want to look at different ideas of what it means to be perishing. Romans chapter 1. We'll start in verse 18. The wrath of God is what? Does that sound present tense to you? That sounds like present tense to me. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world... Everybody knows that there's a God. You can see his invisible power, his divine nature. You can understand this from what has been made so that everyone's without excuse. And then Paul starts delineating, kind of, um, he's talking, he's recapitulating the story of Genesis 3, but taking it out of Adam and Eve and a snake and applying it to the world. And he says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their foolish thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. What's the next phrase? Therefore what? God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Now notice one small implication. Everybody's a worshiper. 
Everybody's a worshiper. Worship isn't a religious activity, it's a human activity, and you only have two options. You either worship the creator or you worship creation. End of story. Interesting. Because of this, verse 26, God gave them over. Jump down to verse 28. So God, it says it again, so God gave them over. So what is the wrath of God, present tense? Giving you what you want. Notice that in this passage, sexual sin isn't the, it's not the, oh, okay, foggy brain. It's not the source of God's wrath. It's the result of God's wrath. In other words, God's wrath being revealed from heaven is allowing human persons to follow their depravity all all the way to its end. Does that sound like perishing to you? I mean, think about the implications of this. How many of you have seen the Lord of the Rings movies? There's a character in them, Gollum, who is wrapped around the desire for this one ring. The ring itself is evil, but it's so corrupted him that, that, this, that a significant part of the story revolves around the way his soul is bent around the possession of this thing. That is perishing. That's Romans 1. God gave them over. That's Genesis 3. God gave them over. So what does it mean to be perishing? It means at least that you and your desires rule your life. I know, I know. It's so positive and happy in here. Right? And if any of you have ever struggled with physical addiction, you know exactly what perishing looks like. Because we'll, we'll look at somebody and say, well, why in the world would you turn your back on drugs? Or, <laughs> I'm sorry, why would you turn, <laughs> I hope we know the answer to that one. Why would you turn your back on your family and on your job and on all of this stuff for the sake of drugs or porn or sin or this other woman or this other man? Why, knowing what you know, you would go do that? And the answer is, it is possible for a human soul to be handed over so that it just gets warped in and bent in on itself. That literally, the thing that runs its life is its own desires. Now, do you think that happens in areas beyond drugs and sex? Absolutely. Money? Power? Go, if you would, to the book of Galatians. There's this whole thread of biblical teaching that we just don't want to talk a lot about because Jesus is my life coach. And his job is to make my life better. So his job is to make me a better husband and a better father. And and he does that. But I think he's up to a little bit more. Because I don't know if... I'm not the center of his universe. I, I don't know. That's good news to me every now and again. Galatians chapter 6. What does it mean to be perishing? Verse 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh 
whoever just gives headlong permission to desire will reap, what's the word? Destruction. You cease being what God intended you to be. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap what? So here's another place where perish and eternal life are held as opposites. So whatever truths of eternal life is true of perishing, whatever is true of perishing is true of eternal life. It's the idea. But notice what's implied here. You get what you want. You're not convinced. Go to the book of James. Now, there, there are some folks, and I, I want to say this, I'm, I'm, I don't know how you get, I have two levels of sick. I have the level of sick that's playful, that was last week. Like, I don't feel good. I'm the level of sick where I'm cranky, and I'm not a nice person. And, um, and I'm being nice, because I have to be. What I really want to be doing is bathing, I want to bathe in Vicks VapoRub, I don't want to get some sort of vacuum tube to come and just stick it down into my lungs and suck it out. Can I, t- can I get an amen on just mucus? I had a point. James chapter 1. I really, I really had something I was trying to say with that. I don't know. Maybe I should be more gentle with this whole topic. But I, I don't know. I, I, feel like, I feel like there is a segment in the American church... And I'm a part of it. I mean, I'm a part of all the sin that you can imagine in the American church. I contribute in my very creative and small ways. That just looks at Jesus and have, has lost any sense of fear or awe or wonder or reverence. And, and there's no sense of urgency to the Christian life. It literally is, I can follow Jesus and do what I want. And I see that in me. And I see it in many, and what we call discipleship for some of us is actually perishing. You understand that? Like, Jesus has come to do more than just forgive us. He's come so that we might be saved presently too. And it would be nice every now and again for the church to look like they're being saved. Right? That there'd be a difference some way, shape, or form between the people who claim to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God and everybody else. And so sometimes, I just want to throw a big old bucket of cold water on me and on us and say, you know what? Let's quit yapping about obeying God. Let's quit pretending. And let's just admit we're sinners, cry out for deliverance, and then have the audacity to take him seriously as a, as a king over our lives. That literally, when Paul says you're not, you're no longer your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And there's no guilt in this, but there is for me a deep-seated conviction. Because for me, God just has to remind me every now and again, you're not just playing here for 80 years, if I'm lucky. You're not just playing. Like, you got work to do. You can get over your adolescence and do work. It matters what you do in this life. It matters. And we can ask all the questions we want 
about, well, what about people who've never heard of Jesus? I'll tell you what happens to them. Are you ready? God will find every single heart that is open to him. End of story. You don't worry about them. What we worry about is whether or not we are among those who will be surprised on that day when Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to put the world to rights. Because one constant in his teaching on this is people are going to be surprised. And so I just, I want to take him seriously. I want us to take him seriously, not not out of guilt, not out of fear, not in the bad fear, I'm afraid of him. But every now and again, we just need to be reminded that what we do here matters. In the words of Maximus, what we do here echoes in eternity. James chapter 1. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. So, here are just three passages that all have to do with desire leading to death. Right? Right? Go to Psalms 135, or Psalm 135. It's like Revelations. Nope, it's just one. Just Revelation. Psalms 135? Nope, just Psalm 135. See, cranky. Cranky. Psalm 135. Not only is the indictment on humanity that we worship and serve created things, but the indictment is then we become like whatever we worship. Psalm 135, verse 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them, what? will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. So consider the man or woman that worships money. Pretty soon they become the kind of person that solely identifies themselves in terms of money, and they begin to look at everybody else as either a potential partner, creditor, or debtor. Hello? Think about somebody giving, given over to money. They define themselves in terms of money. Every activity is defined in terms of money. And they look at other people purely in terms of their usefulness in getting money. Is that someone given over? Absolutely. Is that someone perishing? Yes. They're becoming like that which they worship. Consider the person that worships sex. They define themselves purely in terms of their sexual desire, their sexual orientation, whatever it is, their sexual history or conquests. And they begin to look at every other single person as either an actual or potential conquest. Consider the person that worships power. They begin to define themselves in terms of authority and position. And they begin to see people either as competitors or pawns. 
You become like what you worship. Which has the interesting implication, if you worship Jesus, guess what you become like? You become like Him. So the Bible starts with the idea men and women were made to worship Him. Notice how central worship is to this whole conversation. And that worship was to manifest itself in trusting, loving obedience. But Adam and Eve chose poorly. And as a result, sin and death entered the world. They were excluded from the garden that God had prepared for them. The image of God in them was diminished. Still existed, of course, but diminished. They began to perish. If you push the idea of perish forward, Paul announces that that begins now. Salvation, eternal life begins now, and perishing begins now. So for me, the natural question is, well, what does that look like? Well, for Paul, it looks like idolatry that leads to being given over to your desires. In Galatians, it looks like reaping or sowing, living a certain way. In James, the idea is that desire becomes inflamed with temptation, and then when it's given its reign, it leads to death. And then we throw in the nice, wonderfully positive idea from uh, the book of Psalms that you become like whatever it is you've oriented your life around. Now, could we agree that's really bad news? Right? Go, if you would, to the book of John, chapter 3. Are you guys mad at me? Do you not like me? I'm now worried I've been too angry. Notice, the context of John 3.16 is very interesting to me because Jesus is having a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. We've covered the background of what it meant to be a Pharisee. But he says, to the, he says this thing. Nicodemus comes and he's like, man, you are truly of God because no, there's no way you could be pulling this stuff off unless God were with you. And Jesus doesn't say thank you. He doesn't say, hey, I appreciate your encouragement. He doesn't say, you know, you're really on to something. He just says... Very truly, I tell you, verse 3, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, do you understand why he says that? Because our natural birth births us into rebellion, into sin, into death, into perishing. So we literally have to be born not only again, but you could translate it from above. And Nicodemus is like, um, hmm. That would be awkward with my mom. Um, how can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus will later say, and you call yourself a teacher of Israel? But now he says, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. So the idea, brothers and sisters, is that you and I are born quite naturally into a kingdom that is described in the scriptures as darkness, kingdom of lies, a kingdom of slavery. It is a kingdom where the wrath of God rests upon those in it, because literally, and the wrath looks like not an arbitrary decision, but they're perishing. See, hell isn't an arbitrary destination. 
It is the end result of a journey. And you would say, yeah, but no one would ever choose hell if given the choice. But the scriptures teach this. Choices towards evil begin to confirm evil. So, take pornography. First-hand experience with this one. True or false? The more you indulge, the less you want to? No. The more you indulge, the more you want to. Every single desire that can be gratified in human life suffers from the law of diminishing returns. It's the way God has oriented the universe. No matter what good you worship, you need more of it to experience less of it. It's this unique slavery. It's part of God's justice being put on display when creatures worship things other than him. And the idea is that, you know, people will say this to me, and I used to think it, man, all right, I'm going to have fun now. And then in 10 years, I'm going to get serious about Jesus. The idea is that you can be so given over that 10 years from now, you're no longer the kind of person that would ever want to worship Jesus. Choices towards evil confirm themselves. And there's a momentum that's built. And I just don't want you to keep it in the category of lust or money or addiction, but let's talk about materialism. You know, violence, anger, prejudice, jealousy, envy, gossip. They all work the same way. And so Jesus announces, I've come to set you free. So he says to Nicodemus, you've got to be born an entirely different time in an entirely different way. Because you yourself cannot get out of this mess. So literally, you must be born of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus comes announcing the presence and the reality of God's kingdom and his spirit open to everybody. Now, that is bad news. Would you agree? I mean, this part is good news, but the whole message is like, that's bad news. And I wanted us to feel the weight of bad news. I really wanted us to just go, oh, I really don't like this. I'm not comfortable with this. Are we comfortable with this? No. But who are we talking about here? For God. Who is that? Well, that's Yahweh and his son, Yahshua. So loved the predominant and utter orientation of God towards each and every human person ever in existence. It's been they were loved beyond what they could possibly imagine before they were even made. That's why loved is in the past tense. It compelled God to send his son while we were sinners. Our God is not looking for people to damn. He's looking for people to save. Because he loves every single person. That's the God we're talking about. And notice, shall not perish. That's just an add-on. It's like, hey, by the way, one of the side benefits of following Jesus is you don't perish. And so has the teaching on hell been so absolutely abused in the church? Yes! It's awful. I was told in church as a six-year-old, Pray a prayer or fry in hell. I'll pray. 
I don't even need to think about it. I'll pray. Is that the invitation? No. God wants more for his kids than just to stay out of jail. In the same way, you want more for your kids than to just stay out of jail. You want them to flourish. You want them to fulfill the purpose for which they were created. And so you beg them. You plead them. You invite them. But some will choose death. And evidently, God lets them. I don't know how it works. I don't, I don't know the answers to all the people in third world countries. I just know God will find every heart open to him. End of story. Don't know how he does it. He just will. I worry about us. Because the vast majority of the teaching that Jesus does on hell is given to the religious folks. How about that one? Never once in a setting of non-Christians does he, or non-Jewish folks, does he lead with hell. Not once. It's always when he's talking to religious leadership. So guess who needs to hear this? All of you that are disciples of Jesus. I need to hear it. One last thought. I, the older I get, going on 21, I used to, I, I know some of you can relate to this. Uh, in youth group, we talk about the second coming of Jesus. And I would say, well, Jesus, can you hold off until I get married and have sex? I just really like to do that. That just sounds, that sounds super fun. Now, it's funny to me that none of you are laughing at this, either because you're pretending to be way holier, which I don't believe. Some of you brothers right now, you've thought it, you've talked about it, and you're not owning up, and I just condemn you. And so, and it was kind of like, it was kind of like God's wrath. It was like, ah, I just don't ever want to hear about this sort of stuff. It's not good news. I just like Jesus loves me, this I know. The older I get, and I'm confronted with, let's see, my dad, my stepdad, my father-in-law have died the last three years. Uh, Birth defects, right, my sweet little dude. Um, And it's glorious with him. But I see some of the suffering, just some of the physical stuff that goes with him. Dear friends that are dying of cancer, my own struggles with sin, depression, anxiety, my, the older I get and the more I see the despair and the hurt and the pain of this world, the bigger and the better the idea is of utterly the judgment of God. Because the scriptures say that there will come a day of judgment when everything's purified and all that's left over is a new heaven, a new earth, God dwelling face to face with his people and his people. All the sin and all the disease, and all the shame, and all the guilt, and all the agony, and all the brokenness, and all the despair, and all the fear, will be eradicated. That's good news to me. 
I am. And so I just want to say, you can talk about God's wrath as in being some arbitrary judge, but I tell you it is possible for wrath and love to coexist. Suppose you're a cancer researcher and your wife is dying of the very disease you're trying to cure. Do you hate cancer? Suppose you're a parent and your child, despite persistent and ruthless love, insists on abusing and hurting your family. Suppose that you've tried everything, and I've sat with parents who've had to do this, who've had to literally say to their children, we can't join you in this. You can't live here anymore and do this. Do they do that in spite of their love? Or because of it? Because of it. Is it possible for God's wrath and God's love to coexist? Suppose I stood before all six million Jews that perished at the hand of the Nazi regime. And suppose I told them, hey, I've got great news for you. God, when everyone dies, is going to throw a cosmic party You get to spend eternity with Hitler. It is going to be glorious. He loves everybody and accepts everybody. And we are just going to enjoy him forever. And it's going to be awesome. Okay. But if you're Jewish and you hear that, is there something missing? Yeah. Justice. So the scriptures clearly teach God will purge this world of all that is evil, all that is broken, all that is not fit for his kingdom. Not as an act of an arbitrary, capricious, malicious deity who just is ticked off because people didn't follow his stupid rules, but rather because he is committed that human beings flourish the way they were made to flourish. And if that means and I don't get it, and I can't understand it. But I look at Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, saying, if you'd only known what's offered you today, instead you will be destroyed. He lets them be destroyed. Or the rich young man that comes up to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus gives a hard teaching, and the man leaves and it says that Jesus loved the man and let him walk away you can't tell me that God's up there just assigning people to hell arbitrarily in some way in some way perish is the end of a road of perishing not an arbitrary capricious judgment but the inevitable consequence of a soul that simply does not want God. In that case, isolation from God is the reward for the desire to be isolated from God. I don't know how it works. I just know that it does. And I know, brothers and sisters, 
that you and I 